Hello and welcome to Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Colin Elliott, the Associate Chair in the Department of History at Indiana University. He describes himself as an economic and social historian with an interest in money, disease and ecology in the ancient Roman world. His latest book, Pox Romana, The Plague That Shook the Roman World, is released on the 6th of February and is currently Amazon's number one new release in communicable diseases. And he's also the host of the Pax Romana podcast. Hello, Colin, how are you? And where are you? And what's it like there right now? Hi, Donald. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation to come on your podcast. I am in Bloomington, Indiana, where it is dreary and dark, but the worst of the winter seems to be over. So it's looking up, I think. You know, we got a little bit of a February surprise this uh, this month, and yeah, seems great. I'm in Montreal as always. I'm looking behind you. I can see the snow outside. We're not having a blizzard <laughs> at the moment. But I'm glad. I'm glad to be indoors. Um, yeah. All right. Let's start with very. Let's start with the basics. Let's assume that our audience know nothing about ancient Roman communicable diseases. And why yeah. would they? But yeah. they're gonna by the end of the within the next hour they're gonna know a, a lot more about one in particular. So let's start with some basics. What on earth was the Antonine Plague? All right, I could easily start by saying we don't know, but I'll tell you what we do know. We do know there is a disease. It was a new disease that nobody had seen before. It found its way somehow. I have some theories, but it found its way somehow into the Roman Empire. And it hit numerous cities, including the capital of Rome. We have some symptoms which give us a sense of maybe what it could have been like, but it was a very serious disease. It was deadly. It was highly transmissible. It infected soldiers. It infected senators. It infected the rich. It infected the poor. It lasted at minimum 10 years. And some historians think it lasted longer than that. We don't know. The evidence kind of dries up, but we're looking at about 165 AD until at least the mid seventies AD, and then perhaps a bit longer. So yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) We think our, we think our pandemic has been dragging on for a while, but yeah, Yeah. this isn't bear thinking about. Yeah, no, it's uh, not. We, we, we're dealing with nothing compared to what they dealt with. So, okay, I'm going to ask you the question that's going to be on everyone's lips, right? They're like most, like most questions are kind of annoying to historians. So people are going to say, well, so what sort of disease are we talking about here? Like, what's, the di- what's our best educated guess uh, a diagnosis? Yeah, so the symptoms suggest maybe a pox virus. And I want to be real cautious about that because... Uh, even trying to diagnose this de- disease will give some of my colleagues an apoplexy. Yeah. They just, uh, it's, <laughs> you know, nobody wants to do retrospective diagnosis. But at the same time, it's true that when we do retrospective diagnosis, we often get it wrong. So we know that there was a fever, there were ulcers in the throat, there was blood black and stool, foul breath. Uh, it lasted, the symptoms could last for weeks. And the thing that makes it sound kind of like a pox virus of some kind is that some victims developed a pustular rash uh, all over their body. And then there is even a hint, depending on how we read Galen's Greek, and Galen's a physician that Mm -hmm. treated this disease, depending on how we read his Greek, that there might have been some scarring. So there might have been some residual scarring, which that all sounds kind of like something like smallpox. Now, it can't be modern smallpox because we know from genetic evidence that that disease is only 500 years Uh old. But it could potentially be an ancestor or a, a variant or something like that. I don't think that's totally off the table. Yeah, no, it's not fun and games anyway. It's it's a pretty horrible disease. Yeah, like, and it went on for a really long time. And I guess we should introduce our cast of characters then. So we call it the Antonine Plague um, because it's named after it, of the cognomen of Marcus Aurelius, his dynasty, the Antonines. Um, we, we could also think of it as the plague of Marcus Aurelius. It's also sometimes been called Galen's Plague. That's right, because Galen, who was a court physician 
to Marcus Aurelius as one of our main sources. He he considered himself an authority on the subject. That's right. Um, that was his big break. Like he was yes. rubbing his hands with glee. <laughs> yes, he 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 managed to have his career arc at exactly the right time. But the annoying thing about this is that Galen despite having so much knowledge about this disease, he's such an arrogant person yeah. that he shares so much more about what he did to uh, you know, yeah. treat the Antonine Plague than actually just describing the symptoms. It's really funny because he gets mad at Thucydides uh-huh. for describing the Athenian Plague as a historian, and he wished that uh-huh. Thucydides would have talked more about the cures and the medicines. Right. But- his, as a historian, I'm frustrated with Galen because yeah. he talks about the Antonine Plague um, more like a doctor and not like a historian. Galen's a frustrating guy in general. He's a, he's every he's notoriously arrogant, but he 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 claims that Marcus Aurelius thought he was the bee's knees. Yeah, like of course he's going to he say would, that. Though. Yeah, Marcus Aurelius <laughs> doesn't mention him. No, <laughs> no, and you know what's funny too, and we might get to this later. But when the plague hits Aquilia, when uh-huh. Marcus is there with Galen and Lucius Ferris, Marcus leaves Galen there. Yeah, <laughs> he just jets out of there, and uh, Galen is is stuck in Aquilia. And you can even read in his account; he sounds a little bit bitter. He's like, "The rest of us were left to suffer." He, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, like it's it'd be great to be a fly in the wall, right? So yeah. we've said a lot, but um, maybe we can say a lot bit more then about what other. So we've got Galen, and I, yeah. I guess it's worth saying what we don't have. Marcus Aurelius, and this is also typical of Marcus. Marcus Aurelius is quite a frustrating guy, but in a different way from Galen. So Marcus Aurelius is the master, probably maybe intentionally, of being artfully vague in a uh-huh. way that annoys historians. So in the in the whole of the meditations, where he's dealing with the psychological challenges that he faces during his reign, he manages to only mention the plague in the most fleeting and kind of tangential way imaginable yeah. really like so he he does mention it like typically but tells us virtually nothing about it um he said what he says is the pestilence that corrupts the air around us is is not as bad as the one that corrupts men's souls or something along mm-hmm. those lines you think gee marcus thanks for you <laughs> <laughs> know could you be any more vague um yeah. But it's also strange his attitude towards it. He's like, yeah, it's bad, but you know what's worse? Like having to deal with these guys, yeah. like the Senate, right? <laughs> like my and Galen and people like that. <laughs> <laughs> the people I have to deal with. Um, so that's his take on it, weirdly. Mm-hmm. But um, we've got Galen should be our main source. But what other evidence do we have? Um, yeah, Galen this? is. Galen is our best source, and because he does give us some descriptions of the disease, and I just I shared those a little while ago. Now, beyond Galen, it gets kind of tricky because we have, yes, this one comment, brief comment in book nine of the meditations from Marcus. And then from there, the sources get either uh, they, they come a little bit later than the Antonine Plague, or they are... Um, yeah, just vague or unclear. So there's a satirist named Lucian who at one mm-hmm. point talks about he's really going after a charlatan and we can talk about this too. But there are some charlatans that that uh, crop up during this kind of age of crisis. And in they order make, to colorful characters, they make yeah, life interesting. That's right. Um, one of the interesting things about it is that Marcus Aurelius is a biographer, like if someone has written a biography, one of the challenges of it is that Marcus because he's presented as being very rational and considered and temperate, it makes him the least interesting character, in a sense, in his own story. But as often in Roman history, he's surrounded by this kind of ensemble cast of wackos and, <laughs> you know, like larger yeah. than life. Like everyone else in Marcus Willis's life is kind of quite extreme. Yeah, and that may be partly the way the historians choose to paint it. But the the, the some of the charlatans you're talking about are yeah. there in part because the contrast that they give us, 
right yeah. to the way that, that Marcus is presented. Are you are you talking about Alexander? That's English? right. That's yeah. where I was going. Yeah, Alexander. Right. Oh. So in Lucian, when Lucian's trying to expose Alexander as basically a fraud, uh, he mentions people essentially panicking about this plague. Um, so we have some sense of the social situations, and then the only other kind of contemporary sources are some inscriptions which come from Asia Minor, which describe uh, pestilences hitting those cities mm-hmm. and then the remedies that the gods are demanding. So yeah. setting up statues and ritual purification and some other things. And then after, we're, after the Antonine Plague era, you get retrospective histories by historians of, say, the fourth century in particular, looking backwards and in some cases, describing the disease, but again, in vague ways, just saying it struck everywhere, it hit everybody, it decimated the soldiers, that kind of language. Uh, or you have explanations for why the disease occurred. So you get a story, for example, about Marcus's once loyal, but eventually not loyal general, Vidius mm-hmm. Cassius, letting his army just ransack the city of Seleucia. And then yeah. they happen to tear into a shrine of Apollo. And this brings about a cloud of pestilence. So that's, that's a great story. Kind, yeah, it's a neat story, actually. And those are the kinds, but those we have to kind of sift through that, right, as historians. And it makes it challenging to sort fact from fiction. So those are our main sources of kind of traditional evidence. In the book, uh, I bring in some uh, kind of scientific evidence, so some uh-huh. paleo uh, climatological evidence to look at things like precipitation and sunlight and uh, get a sense of what was going on in the climate. That doesn't tell us directly about the plague, but it does increasingly seem to be the case that there are correlations between uh-huh. Disease yeah. outbreaks in pre-industrial world and cold snaps and dry snaps. Right. And so we do have pretty good indication that yes. that kind of thing happened right before the Antonine Plague and then during. So yeah. that's the kind of evidence we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back because we touched on. I mean, you've mentioned the 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 scientific evidence, which is is fascinating. That's a, a recent contribution, a whole different ball mm-hmm. game. Um, but I guess having raised some of these things, we should say a little bit more about the pestilential vapors yeah. that uh, uh, were found, that, that were released, unleashed. Now, I, funnily enough, I thought this when I read that story and then I noticed someone else, I can't remember who, had written a book about it and noted in passing that somehow it kind of sounds like the scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, <laughs> open in the right. temple, the the ark, and this kind of like horrible yes light comes out and kills everybody. So these guy, these legionaries, break into a temple. They're looting a city, um, and it's like basically a war crime they're committing, and yeah. allegedly, and they they loot this temple of Apollo, who conveniently is associated with plague and healing. And they threw a crack in the wall or something. They find a hidden uh, alcove. Like, it's a really contrived story. And in it, they find some kind of casket that they open up and these pestilential vapors are released, which also sounds like the myth of Pandora's box. That's right. Weirdly. Um, That's exactly right. A trope, right? And then they get contaminated with it and then they spread it you know, it's an interesting, maybe that leads on to another story. Actually, it leads on to a good question, a, so, a kind of social, cultural, historical question about it. Having raised the subject of of uh, science, and so, we'll, we'll, we'll put that aside completely for a moment and talk about the, po- the total opposite, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cultural history and the superstitions and the religion Um And you mentioned uh, Thucydides as well. So I guess a good place to start is to what extent, how how would the Romans really have responded to this? We can see they were kind of gossiping about it. They were spreading Mm -hmm. these kind of myths, probably, um, Mm -hmm. you know, dramatizing the the origin of the disease. Um, I suspect that they must have associated it with the plague in Homer, because yeah. is their main culture. Yep. Everyone would have been familiar. Yeah. It's how um, the uh, the Iliad opens 
with this uh, discre- right. a similar kind of. Discre- and it's Apollo. It's Apollo's fault, right? We'll blame him. I mean, to what extent? So it's a cliche we say now. Oh, we're being, you know, in the ancient world, people just believed they were being punished by the gods all the time. They kind of did. They did. It's one hundred percent true. Yeah. yeah, they actually did. Um, and we can see from the way even that Marcus Aurelius responds. What does he do? He goes out and he has a good ritual. Yep. Right. Um, and now there are other men. It leads on to some interesting questions about what are the other measures that Marcus takes. So let's begin. Let's come to that in a moment. But let's start with how to what extent were they mythologizing this and interpreting it in terms of their religious beliefs? Yeah, I would say that is the dominant reaction. I mean, even. Yeah. Uh, you know, Galen is probably one of the only sources. In fact, it may be the only source I can think of where we right. read of some attempt at practical treatment. Yeah. Everything else that I remember encountering is re- is religious in nature. From yeah. yeah, the story that I'm that we talked about, where there's a you know there's an immediate search for impiety. If mm-hmm. something like this happens, and this is a calamity beyond the scale of anything that's happened, right? If you have a local yeah. epidemic in the Roman world, um, you can appeal to local gods. You, you might find a local magician right. or somebody that's cursing the city or some local scapegoat yeah, yeah. that you can deal with. But when a disease begins to spread across the Roman empire, that really freaked people out. And their first instinct is which gods are upset there must because the gods plural there must be multiple and what was the huge bad thing that was done uh, yeah. to deal with this and so i think the avidius cassius plays a role in that story we mentioned because his betrayal of marcus aurelius was such a great impiety yeah. right and so that's one potential uh source of blame but there's a lot uh so i talked about alexander um uh-huh. he is taking advantage of people just looking for some kind of magic spell or magic words or something they can use to ward this thing off. Uh, Because if the plague like this is so big, um, the traditional gods are angry, but they might also like have stopped listening. So Mm -hmm. maybe there's a need to turn to other things. So you get Mm -hmm. some experimentation uh, Mm -hmm. with, again, different kinds of magic and things. Um, uh, Who's the uh, Aristides of, uh, of Smyrna also mm-hmm. writes, uh, he claims to be one of the earliest victims, and he thinks that oh, the yeah. gods were just interested in taking people's lives. And he has a he has what he thinks are plague symptoms. I think he uh-huh. was kind of a hypochondriac myself, and I'm not sure that he got the plague. But he thinks the gods came to him in a dream, uh-huh. and they um, decided that they were going to take somebody else's life instead of his. And right. so that's why he he made it through. The, the sniffles that he had that he thought were the Antonine plague. But like I mentioned too, there are, it's, there are statues that are set up uh-huh. to mostly to Apollo, but also to Artemis in the Eastern part of the Roman yeah. empire. Some of it gets pretty dark. So some right. of it's like, we need to find uh, the, there's a magician and we need to burn him and we need to burn his stuff. Yeah. There's even uh, one inscription that says, Anybody that does not follow what we're saying in the inscription, which was a variety of purification rituals and hymns and stuff, anybody that doesn't do this is going to be cursed with fire. And presumably yeah. that means like a fever or something. So there's it goes into pretty dark places too. Like not yeah. only do we need to figure out what's wrong, but there's definitely somebody responsible. Yeah. I mean, I just as a general observation here, like I think... I had this experience when I was a young guy and I first began reading classics. I think depending on what we read, we get a very different picture of how contemporary the ancient world seems or how kind of rational um, and modern. So we read, when we read Marcus Aurelius, for the most part, we, we might think he seems like a pretty reasonable guy. Yeah. But this doesn't seem like the kind of guy you know, that's going to be engaging in in two crazy superstitions. He mm-hmm. he seems like quite skeptical and quite logical mm-hmm. and pretty, pretty open-minded. But then we read other ancient sources that are contemporary that paint a picture of quite primitive superstitious yeah. beliefs by our standards and quite extreme. Um, mm-hmm. The whole story of Alexander seems like farcical. 
Yeah. Uh, well, it's satire, but the, yeah. we, we we believe that a lot of it is based on fact. Um, yeah. There's some evidence that, that substantiates it. There is. There was a pewter. So uh, the rest of the story of Alexander for your listeners is um, he sends out these oracles all and what by that i mean he sends out like a ma- some magic words that he claims his pet snake has told him glycon and he sends these out all over the world and the words are like uh it's just a short word that's like uh apollo uh shoots his arrows and keeps off the plague or something you're supposed to write this somewhere like on your door or something like that and there's an amulet that has that was found uh in the thames foreshore in london from the middle of the second century mid late second century which has those words in it yeah um and some other magic things too it has some magic some greek uh vowels which was which were thought to ward off disease and it also even has some hebrew uh uh, yeah. characters in there too, which is quite interesting. Interesting, yeah. But what it shows is exactly what you said. There is just this spread of superstition and it, it clearly, you know, this this whole fear of this pandemic captivated much of the Roman world. This guy was a celebrity. A bonotique, what's the place called? A Bonoticus, is that right? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I might be butchering yeah. that. Um, he came from originally... And well, let's back up a little bit. And we say we don't really say too much about this guy. We don't. Well, let's not dwell on this character. We'll say <laughs> we'll say a little bit more about him. So he's he's a magician. Um, he claims to be a priest of Asclepius, I believe, who's mm-hmm, the that's right god of medicine and the son of Apollo, who's the more general deity responsible for healing and and plague. Um, Apollo's the, your obvious choice is a god yeah. that's that's punishing you with a plague. But probably you need, you know, like bear in mind the other gods as well. And so this guy has, according to Lucian, who is a satirist, but nevertheless we believe it's grounded in fact, a kind of sock. But you said it was a pet snake. It's both well, a pet snake and a sock puppet. Yeah, it might be paper mache. Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's unclear whether it was a real snake with like some kind of a, of like a wig or a thing on, or it An might eels. have been yeah, basically like. A sock puppet, yeah, or something. It had human. It had to be able to hear you, so it had human yes. ears and yes. long hair. Yeah, and and there was a tube connected to the sock puppet, and a guy stood behind, like the Wizard of Oz or something. Yes, there's a guy behind the curtain, and it's dark, I guess, and there's incense, and you go in, and you pay a bunch of money if yes. you get Always. to see this guy. <laughs> Always, and this snake, this snake kind of sock puppet thing like talks to you with ears talks to you and gives you you know some kind of advice or whatever and when the plague hit they thought who could we who can we turn to yeah. for a solution they thought this the, the it's also the snake is called sweetie weirdly <laughs> right glycon is yes. i guess it's the cognate with our word glucose yes like it's called he's a snake <laughs> called sweetie that's the grandchild of, I think the snake is supposed to be a child of Asclepius. So it's like the I, grandchild either of, that, or I've also read like that, that he might've been the reincarnation, like a, like almost oh, like yeah. a bodily manifestation of the God. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty wacky stuff. And the, but this, this is huge. He's a big, deal. yes. He's like, on the coins. Yeah, Lucius the coins. Horus puts him on a coin. <laughs> he's a, a, a massive, select. he's the, he's the ancient precursor of like Jordan Peterson or something. He's like he's like the kind of go to sort of like a, like self improvement guru almost in a sense like his name has has kind of like spread like wildfire and and yeah. maybe the controversy helped to fuel that but it's not all, also it's not just the kind of ordinary people there are senior Roman statesmen several of them like who who fall for this guy. Like, one senator even uh, offers him as uh, her yeah. uh, his daughter, if I that's remember right. correctly. That's right. Yeah, just so that's a thing. That's part of their response is they embrace superstition, and I guess that leads us maybe let's talk about about the more general culture. So I mentioned I was I put in the notes. There's a guy with a stork. The, yeah. stork, the stork guy. <laughs> so we don't know his name. So there's this guy who turns up presumably during the plague and he uh, gets in a fig tree 
in the Campus Martius. Like, this is welcome to Roman history, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the Augustan history. Yeah, he climbs yeah. in a tree, allegedly. And he, he tells everyone there's going to be fire and brimstone. And I guess it's kind of apocalyptic. It's like a doomsday cult or something that he yeah. starts. And this causes a lot of uh, anxiety at Rome, apparently. And then he, he says he seems to be saying that his followers are all going to be saved because they're going to turn into birds and fly away or something. And he had to prove this. He hides a stork inside his robes and then falls out a tree and pretends to be dead and kind of rolls over and, and lets the stork out from under his robe and, and flies away. And, and yeah. basically no one was convinced by it. Even, even the Romans were yeah. like, this seems a bit fishy. Like and so he ended up uh, having a trial before Marcus Aurelius, and he said, "I think he said, I'll pardon you on yeah. condition that you fess up and tell everybody that this was a scam, <laughs> basically yeah. to stop being so silly." Like, but I wonder if there's any truth in this story at all. What it maybe suggests is a kind of level of like sort of moral panic and religious panic mm -hmm. and the spread of kind of, of doomsday cults, yeah. you know, perhaps as a consequence of people, the, the sense of disempowerment that comes from right. something is scary. I mean, the main, I would say one of the fundamental things psychologically about the plague is just the ignorance of like, you know, we've no sweet idea what what's really, what's actually going on here. We could all drop dead tomorrow. And yep. not only that, hideously, like yes. you know, and it's not—it's no joke. And the anxiety that that must have caused—it's no. And I guess you—you you respond in either of two extreme ways: either you become incredibly stoic, which it seems to be Marcus Aurelius's response. He's just like, whatever, you've got to die one day, kind of thing. Yeah. It just drives him even further into stoicism, or you—you you freak out and you—you yeah. you start clutching at straws. Like to put it crudely, I mean, what to, to what extent do you think that Roman society responded by becoming more kind of superstitious and yeah, uh, and and uh, engaging in a sort of religious panic? This is a major theme in the book because uh, as much as we don't know about the disease, I felt much more comfortable looking at the source material and just seeing almost everywhere I looked, signs of anxiety, angst. One of the chapters in the book just calls it the age of angst because this is, uh, yeah, from the doomsday cults to the uh, erecting of statues to the scapegoating. I mean, yeah. there may even be some Christian persecution in there as well, which it's there's it doesn't allow us to the sources do not allow us to explicitly tie that to the Antonine plague, but mm -hmm. there there are some contemporary events. There's the potentially the martyrdom of just of uh, Justin Martyr, which we don't know exactly when that happens. It could be around the time, but there is also this uh, huge massacre in Gaul, uh, in uh, Lugdunum, which is where modern Lyon is. And there were like 50 men, women, and children that were murdered. Their bodies were burned, which is the kind of thing that was being done in Asia Minor with um, sacrificial victims during yeah. the, the plague outbreaks there. Um, so there there does seem to be some pretty good evidence of, evidence of just outright panic. Outright, and, it's, and it's religious panic. It really is. Which gods are angry? Have the gods abandoned us? Uh, there's just this obsession over health. And it's you can see yeah. it in Aristides as well. You just see it all over the place. It seems to be uh, just an age of terror in many ways. Yeah, you've given me an idea, you know, like it's not often when you've been studying a subject for a long time, it's not often that you, you, you know, you kind of think, hang on, maybe I'm, I'm starting to see a new angle on this. But I'm, I'm starting from even in our discussion right now, I'm starting to wonder, maybe we can see Marcus Aurelius as living through a period of more a kind of more extreme contrast between you know maybe part of the explanation is what for him being so stoic is it's often the case right. i think that people there's a fork in the road now you go to yes. one extreme or you go to the Pendulum. other either you freak out completely or you become 10 times more stoic than you would have been yes. like and i guess we can see marcus as a guy who's living in an age of anxiety and that drives him to become super interested in emotional resilience and mm -hmm. 
you know, and maybe the consequence of that is if he's successful, he comes out of it maybe as one of the most, you know, maybe that's why he's such an exemplar um, or, mm. or modern, you know, interpretation of him is. What people admire about him is he seems like a really chill guy because he it, has it to could, be. Yeah, it right. could also explain why he doesn't talk about it nearly as much. So, yeah. there, like, there's this one point where he writes a letter to Athens and the the plague, the the pandemic has been going on for a year or two. And he doesn't, it's clear that he's talking about the plague because mm-hmm. he talks about people dying in the mm-hmm. Athenian uh uh, like elite council of nobles in the city, mm-hmm. but he just instead of calling it the plague or the disease or the pestilence, he just says something about the calamities of the times. Mm-hmm. Like he just kind of says, "Look, there are the bad things that are happening." He he just mm-hmm. doesn't really even uh, mention it, and it's the same as you already mentioned before with the meditation. So I think you might be onto something. I that think if you he, think, sorry, carry on. No, I was just gonna say that he does seem to push the other way, right? The rest, so many others are just going nuts, including people around him, including people close to him. Yeah. He would have experienced this very intimately. I mean, you have to wonder if at least some of his children might've got the illness. Lucius Ferris may have got the illness, but he, he just seems to not let it affect him. Well, wait, we mentioned, I mean, just to kind of, I refer back to something we mentioned earlier, like there were two senior Roman, two, two Roman proconsuls, that got involved with Alexander of Bonaticus. And these are guys that Marcus, these are senior statesmen that Marcus has to work with, right? Yeah. So he's sitting there, you know, like contemplating things, you know, from a, 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 you know, a broader historical perspective, being very detached, you know, viewing it with kind of studied rational indifference. But he's having to correspond with and deal with senior guys in his administration who are complete yeah. wackos. Like when it comes to what's going on around them, and actually, there's a military disaster. Like yes. the results from um, Alexander of Bonaticus advises um, right. the proconsul Lion of Cappadocia. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's that, and then he it was it's Alexander that tells when the Parthians first invade, the the pro, the proconsul of Cappadocia attacks them and loses a legion. That's right. Like, because Alexander Bonaticus says, you know, you need to strike quickly. And what's so, so weird about that is that when, after that, when the Romans actually begin to respond properly to the Parthians, their preparations are vast. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the difference between what this guy tried to do like, yeah. and what Marcus does in terms of the military campaigner are colossal. It's clear that they think, you know, this is going to require a lot of planning. Yes. Like preparation is going to require a much bigger army. It's crazy yeah. that this guy marched into Armenia or whatever, you know, thinking he could just take them on with a single legion or whatever. And he, he got yeah. his ass handed to him as we. And I think he, he committed suicide as well. He fell in disgrace. His, and that that's the fault yeah. allegedly. That's the the fault of this uh, charlatan that we're we're talking about as well. So mm. this these are the guys that Marcus Willis has to work with. You know, that's his colleagues. Like yeah. they're 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 pretty wacky at yeah. times. Um, the, I should mention there's a couple other references to disease in the meditations, but generally he says things like, um, he says disease and death are as predictable as roses in the spring and the harvest of fruit in the fall. So he kind of just compares it to the the a natural. Like it's like, yeah, diseases come and go. Like it's just a natural thing, like the changing seasons, and mm-hmm. is what he says about it. Um, so incredible, like extreme stoic reaction to mm-hmm. it's highlighted. We don't. I think we underestimate how stoic Marcus Aurelius is in a sense until we look at how everyone else is behaving around him. Mm-hmm. I think the Roman historians are conscious of that, especially Historia Augusta seems to yeah. play that up, maybe exaggerates it a bit. But his, like, but in the meditations we see that. You know, we see this guy, you know, completely detached and away from what's going on around him. He clearly cares about people, at least he seems to imply that from the way that he talks about them. And, I mean, also, weirdly, in his private letters, he comes across as quite a very affectionate, very personable individual. Mm -hmm. He's not a cold-hearted, callous, you know, type of person. He's quite the opposite. He's a family guy, Mm -hmm. loves his kids, loves his friends, 
you know, he's he's got quite a good sense of humor, and yet, you know, he views the plague as like just a kind of natural uh, process. That's right. And I think that. Yeah, I think that helped him to respond well when he first encounters it in the city of Rome. So the plague hits Rome. It's relatively new at this point. This is AD 166. So at most, the plague has been around for a year in the Roman Empire, maybe mm-hmm. less. And he's very calm about it. He, I, It's clear that he, he can't mitigate the disease. When a similar plague happens under Titus, when a local epidemic happens, we're Titus has described the emperor as like trying to find any possible religious solution he could. Mm-hmm. Maybe Marcus does that too. But the other thing that he does is he's very practical. So he like provides for yeah. the, the corpses, right? right? Makes sure to have the corpses removed. He passes laws to uh, restrict the way that people are disposing of corpses because we know from contemporary evidence right. in the ancient world that people would have thrown corpses anywhere they could. They would have yeah. put them in the bushes, in the Tiber, down the sewers. They would have thrown them in the tombs yeah. of other people that didn't belong yeah. to them. They just would have snuck them in there. And so Marcus is just really attempting to be quite practical about and, and just sort of sober-minded about funded, how he deals with the plague. He released state funds for the, to pay for the funerals of the poor. That's and right. There were cartloads, we're told by one source, again, if we can believe it, that there were cartloads of bodies like yeah. being taken out of, of Rome at the time. And I guess well, the other thing we, we kind of alluded to at the beginning, this this is, unlike our pandemic, like it, it's quite the opposite in one sense. And one of the issues with our pandemic is its kind of lack of visibility. Yeah. You know, whereas this is a highly visible place. Yes. You're going to see people in the street probably covered in sores. You know, right. you're going to be people living in your house, dark, coughing up blood and dying. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to you're going to be surrounded by reminders yeah. of yeah. the plague, uh, I think. And also, I believe that one of the ways the Romans would typically deal with this would be by burning medicinal, medicinal incense. Yes, it comes back to the pestilential vapor thing. So they they That's kind right. of were half right, and that they thought there was some their go to idea is there's some kind of contamination in the air right. that we're breathing, you know, and like they may be like uh, inhaling like something that's that's spreading the contamination. So they might not be completely. The problem is the solution to that is to burn incense. Because they think that's going to purify right. the air, right? Which is completely pointless. However, culturally, I wonder if Rome and some of these other cities just reeked of incense a lot of the time, and people it acted as a kind of constant reminder of the fact that you're living in the middle of a, a pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And there was, in fact, a um, a sarcophagus that was pulled up in Rome, and I don't remember when this was. It may have been several decades ago, but it was fairly well sealed and the remains inside were of a young girl and mm-hmm. they, she had been mummified essentially. Mm-hmm. And they were able to get a sense of her lungs. And it looked like she, her lungs were just full of, wow. of soot and right. just, yeah, it was, uh, which, and you know, Seneca at one point describes how just reeking and stinking Rome was from kitchen yeah. fires. So if you have to think about it, it's not, it, the incense obviously would have been, Yet another thing to, you know, cloud (laughs) the air in addition to the oil lamps and the fires and all of that. Um, The other thing that we see in terms of this uh, kind of miasmatic theory is laurel leaves. So Commodus during an epidemic in Rome in 190, which may or may not have been related to the Antonine Plague, Uh he gets counseled to go out and hang out in laurel groves and then everybody in the city (laughs) is sniffing laurel leaves so you're exactly right there's just this attempt to deal with it with smells because that's going to push the bad air out of your body you're going to take in the good smells Uh, and the bad air is going to go out now i'm going to say something that's going to get me into trouble because actually i'm a i'm a big advocate of evidence-based practice and i'm not a skeptic when it comes to pandemic mitigation measures like masks and things like that However, you could say that burning incense is their kind of equivalent, their mitigation measure. Like, and it's, yeah. their, it's their equivalent of masking up and stuff yeah. like that to some extent. Now, what other, you mentioned something else. Actually, I wanted to kind of just dig into very briefly. He also prohibited people from um, burying corpses above ground in, 
uh, in Tim's. Uh, mm. And I kind of, I, I was curious what the reasoning was there. And I did, this is speculation, but I wondered if it has to do with this miasmatic theory and perhaps he thought we need to bury these bodies or cremate that light. You yeah. can't put them in a tomb above ground because they might be decomposing and releasing more pestilential vapors into the atmosphere. So I wondered if that was an attempt based on their misunderstanding of the the plague to try and control the spread of it. I think that's a very reasonable speculation. And again, we where we... Well, I'll say this. It's really hard to find um, remains from this period in terms of uh, which may or may not track with the plague. The only remains that we find are buried remains, but there's also a lot of evidence of burning of bodies too. Mm -hmm. So it does seem like Marcus uh, was at least thinking about the possibility of corpses being a source of contamination. And yeah, they don't understand germ theory, but there is a sense of contagion. So at one point when Marcus is sick at the very end of his life, uh, I can't remember which source it is. I can't remember if this is Cassius Dio or if this is this Augustan history. Yeah. But Marcus tells the physicians, Correct. "Hey, you need to get Commodus away from me because yeah. I'm sick." Yeah. And so he do- again, he doesn't understand germs, but yeah. he does seem to think very carefully about contagion. And maybe Marcus would be the person to do that because he was sick a lot of t- you know a lot of his life. He's advocating his le- social distancing. He is. He is. Yeah. And seem, seems to be aware, at least, that there is a need to be away yeah. from sickness. And I think that also explains a little bit more why he books it out of Aquilia when yeah. the disease hits there in 168, 169. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So what, I mean, can you think of any other um, indications of him taking measures in response to the plague? Maybe that that might be some of the main ones. Is there anything else that he does? Yeah. That's about all that I can think of. I mean, we've really hit on all of them. Uh, the, yeah. the bodies, the uh, the laws on burials, the uh, funerals, right? Which is more, it's not so much mitigation. It's more, hey, we need to have dignity, right? We need to yeah. recognize our kind of common humanity here and and grieve together. Uh, there is there is uh, getting away from the disease. We see that. And then also some of the um, comments in the meditations, which sound like, his main reaction inside of his own mind was acceptance and, you know, trying to think about things like character rather than being afraid uh, and acting out of fear, right? Not trying to pursue pleasure and not seeking just to avoid pain. He seems to have really looked at it like a stoic. I'm going to kind of now speculate a bit and scrape barrel a bit for other indications of things that might be relevant. But if I remember rightly, when his wife dies, he sets up a, a charity for orphaned children, hmm. like in her name. Um, they were called the Faustinian Girls or something like that. Hmm. Um, and I, so I wonder whether that could just be because it was something that she had an interest in. I think her family maybe had some kind of precedent for this, like her mother perhaps had a, a, a similar kind of philanthropic. Uh, thing in her name but uh, it may also be that there were a lot of orphans because of the the plague and so this is you know a a kind of policy that you know he's uh, he's enacting Mm -hmm. and then the Mm -hmm. other thing I've mentioned um, is Marcus seems to be more meritocratic in some Mm -hmm. ways than other emperors and to the extent that I believe that that looks like it may have caused some pushback or some problems for him Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, a good example, and not the example that's actually noted by the historians, but he, Pertinax, um, who's his second most senior general in the, the Northern Campaign on the, on the Danube, ends up, uh, I think he was an equestrian originally, but he mm-hmm. ends up becoming emperor. Like, that's right. After Com- Commodus. Uh, he right. Was actually, I think he was the son of a slave, if I remember rightly. Yeah, there's a rumor that that was the case. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, Marcus, I think, is perceived as promoting uh, people of humble origins, as Mm -hmm. as it's normally put. Um, Above, and the the subtext there is he's promoting them above other people who are maybe even uh, of noble birth. Uh, But Avidius Cassius would be a good example. Avidius Cassius 
is a distant descendant of Augustus. He's related mm. to Herod the Great. Like he's wow. got blue blood running through, absolutely running through wow. his veins. Um, and yet Marcus promotes above him another Syrian, a guy who was born near him called Pompeianus, um, who was an equestrian originally. He was kind of relative mm. nobody. Um, he marries Marcus's daughter. So there's no one, in a way, there's no surprise it was the Civil War. Like, mm. Avidius Cassius must have thought, this other Syrian general is my inferior. Yeah. Like, why, why on earth would you uh, promote him? You're, you're virtually making him a Caesar. Like, mm. he's, he's uh, married to an Augusta. Like, mm-hmm. So, and there was a rumor that Marcus had asked him to become Caesar as a kind of interim ruler. By the way, Pompeianus, um, Ridley Scott's Gladiator, which is not a, a historical yeah, film. Sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> does, a nice film, though. It's a fun film. In some ways, it has bits in it that are more loosely based on, on the historical evidence than, than people realize, I think. So the character of Maximus is at least a tiny bit like this guy Pompey. There was a guy who he allegedly invited to become a kind of interim ruler um, mm. and was meant to mentor Commodus and and so on. But uh, And he was one of his generals. So this idea, is it possible that the plague would have had an effect on uh, Roman society with regard to filling different offices? Um, people are dropping dead. You know, also yeah. the war's contributing that to that, to be fair. Some, sure. people, just, some people are just getting stabbed, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, other, and other reasons, like some of them are just dropping dropping dead from other Roman reasons, like possible possible assassination or just bad dodgy food poisoning or whatever. Yes. Like, yes. but there's like, Romans drop dead anyway, but even more of them are dropping dead now. So Marcus has to fill these posts. Yeah. Yeah. And he's choosing, maybe he, maybe there's a bit of both, right? He has to fill these posts, but maybe he's also using it as an opportunity to fill them with men from lower ranks. We do see evidence of that really all across society. So your first example is a good one of Faustina's charity, which I was actually totally unfamiliar with that. That's something I've learned just today from you. Um, But if this was indeed a novel disease, which it looks like it would have, see, if it's a if it's an existing disease in the Roman Empire, it's going to kill old people and young people. That's almost that's what happens yeah. usually with endemic diseases. Right. Um, people survive it in childhood and then they don't get it. But if this is a new disease, it's going to kill people of healthy, you know, in their 30s and in their 40s. And it is going to make some orphans. And as you rightly uh, suspect probably would have killed some men who were climbing up the political ladder. And so there is a need for replacement. I think we see evidence of that in a few places. In addition to what you mentioned, one is that letter to the Athenians is really all about you guys need to replace the elites in your town that have died of these uh, calamities of the times. And one of his solutions is to rapidly promote uh, the family members, uh, the parents, the fathers of people that agree to sign up uh, for the military because he's dealing with the recruitment crisis in part because soldiers are dying, yes, of plague, but also, yes, from, from Germans and from other things. So that's another place where we see this. Now, the other place that I think we could look for this, it's a little bit later than the the most likely dates of the Antonine Plague, but under Commodus, right before... Mm-hmm. This epidemic hits Rome in 190. Uh, his freedman advisor, Cleander, is mm-hmm. described as being very scandalous for having uh, given the consulship to 25 men in a single year. And the argument in the sources is well, he's done this because he's just so corrupt and he's just, uh, so, you know, give, sold so many men the consulship. There's only supposed to be two consuls a year. Uh, well, four under the empire because. Two get it for six months, and then the emperor gets to appoint two more for six months. Anyway, the point is, maybe those consuls were appointed because there was a dearth in men of consular age by the time we get right. into the late 180s, That's because true. many of them would have died. Yeah. If this is a novel disease, and it was a pandemic. The elite could not just leave Rome and get away. They yeah. would have died in equal proportions to the common population. So I think you're right. There could very well have been 
a need for interesting uh, to raise up men there's to, to serve men. in various roles there's not enough old senators like of senior sen- of senior consular rank like mm-hmm. those guys tended to be quite old like yeah they're gonna yeah. be dropping like flies yeah, minimum right. age for a consul is, uh, think thirty nine. If you're a plebe, if you're a patrician, that is your stock comes from the the kind of founding stock of Rome, the founding families. Yeah. It's uh, forty two if you're a plebeian. So right. you have to be in the kind of middle age bracket. Yeah, yeah. So these are Rome's senior statesmen. Yeah, and there maybe you're right. There would be a, a you know a dearth of them. Um. I was going to ask uh, about the the other. We've talked about religion and um, the effect on Roman society. What about the military? Um, to what extent do you think? I mean, one of the things that's mentioned is first of all this legend about the uh, the looting of Seleucia, um, but squarely blames the military. And then, yeah. you know, refer, like basis appears to blame the military for the spread of the disease throughout yeah. the empire, which is kind of plausible. Like, I, I think you, it is. You know, if you've got many thousands of legionaries suddenly traveling all over the place, it's tra- Well, actually, there's an echo of our modern pandemic, right? It's travel, mm. it's international travel. Yes. Boom. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. International travel, like uh, epidemiologists are always telling us, is like, you know, a recipe for disaster when it comes to spreading infectious diseases. And this is a really great example. If you have a war, you're going to send tens of thousands of troops all the way like out to Syria. Like, and now they're going to come back all over the empire and bring yes. disease with them. Um, so, you know, spreading it all over the place. Um, and then the army camps are not healthy places. No. You know, they're dropping like flies. They're, like they're sleeping uh, in close quarters. Um mm-hmm. And so, you know, to the, this we're, one picture that we get is that the the army is quite depleted by this, and it, it, it you know, this maybe even could be used a stretch as an explanation for some of the military setbacks. But certainly, I mean, I suppose the big one is: did the Germans look at this? Um, the Germanic tribes, the Marcomanni and the Quadi, and think this is our this is our big chance. The Romans are dropping like flies. Let's let's invade. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder if there is something to, yeah, the the connection between the plague and just the kind of military uh, quagmire that the Marcomannic War turns mm-hmm. into. Because if we look at the Parthian War, the Parthians were a historically challenging enemy for the Romans yeah. to deal with. And when you get 165 and you get this big surge and Avidius Cassius takes about 30, 40,000 soldiers. And there's a, there's a second wing as well up in the North. Yeah. They just destroy the Parthias. I mean, they just yeah. march right down and it's very, very effective. But then as you're right, one of the bits of research I did for this book was trying to calculate the routes that the soldiers would have taken back mm-hmm. from the Eastern base at Antioch into the Roman Empire. And there's mm-hmm. it's amazing. There's only, uh, we know the legions, several of the legions that participated, and we know where their military bases were, which, in, which were in several parts of Europe. And we also know that they stopped in Ephesus to get food because there's an inscription that describes mm-hmm. a man who fed, uh, you know, uh, way, uh, left, uh, provided enough grain to feed, you know, 50,000 troops. So they go from Antioch to Ephesus, all in kind of, you know, not in one big group, but certainly in, there was a whole crowd of soldiers, right? Just probably spreading diseases. They went through Asia Minor. And then there are only about four routes that they take back to their military bases. So again, you've got this like mobile Petri dish, mm-hmm. just leaking yeah. uh, disease as they go around. So that's probably spreading disease within the Roman empire. And then as you're question also got to there's the marcomannic war when galen describes uh his an interaction he had with marcus talking about going with marcus to fight that war mm-hmm. galen insinuates that marcus thought that that war was going to go real quick that was going to be like a one year yeah. war he'd leave rome and he'd come back in like a year or two mm-hmm. but as you know that that conflict uh, surpassed Mark, like it went longer than Marcus's life. I mean, yeah. it went that thing went on for another decade or so, yeah. and a half. And then, uh, I think part of that is indeed because the soldiers, 
uh, got infected. Uh, they would have yeah. transmitted that. Uh, you know, you've got military camps that are full of not just soldiers, but uh, yeah. kind of the quasi families that soldiers had. They weren't legally allowed to marry, but they still had uh, wives. There would have been prostitutes following the camps, merchants, suppliers, messengers. So those camps would have been just hubs of infection, but they were like mobile cities. I mean, imagine taking yeah. during our pandemic, if you, if you got a city that had an epidemic, a small city, like maybe mine, Bloomington, mm-hmm. Indiana, with which when the students aren't here is about 40,000 people. We've got a surge. Imagine being able to just move that city uh, mm-hmm. about 15 miles every day and just mm-hmm. have it just drop off diseases everywhere it goes. I mean, that's what we're talking about on the border of the Danube. So I have to think that between the uh, difficulty of fighting the Germans, uh, the various German tribes, but then also the disease, Mm -hmm. this must have been really just dragged out this war and made it much more difficult. Now, I wonder, we don't, we don't, I mean, there's a kind of absence of evidence here, I think, and maybe you, you can speak to that though, but we mainly know about how it affected the Romans. That's right. Like, we don't really hear about it affecting the Parthians or the Germanic tribes or the Sarmatians, as far as I recall. Were they affected by it? Or yeah. did they dodge a bullet there? So, no, you're right. The evidence is very sparse. So I, I looked at everything that I could find with the Parthians and with them you have this story of an outbreak in Seleucia, but there are a couple of other possibilities. So there is a um, a writer named, and I'm forgetting his name, Calpurnius something. And we don't have his, he wrote a history of the Roman Parthian War. We don't have it, but what we do have is Lucian criticizing Calpurnius. Mm-hmm. And Lucian says, well, look, Calpurnius talks about the plague that happened in Nisibis, which Correct. is a part of the city. I remember city. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but Lucian just says, well, he just described it like Thucydides. So, you yeah. know, it, you know, he's just copying Thucydides. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a plague there. Like yeah. he do- Lucian doesn't say there was no epidemic. Yeah. So it does look like there may have been an epidemic in several Parthian cities. There's also Dura Europas where... Right. Um, where the Avidius Cassius's soldiers uh, run into before they get to Seleucia. That's kind of, Dura Europas is a city that's right on the kind of boundary. Yeah. It's, it's often switching between uh, Parthian control yeah. and the and Roman control. That city, there's a statue that's erected to Apollo, averter of evil. And it looks like it's erected around 164, or excuse me, 165, uh-huh. um, right after Avidius Cassius's soldiers go through there and perhaps garrison there. So there right. could have been right. some disease there. Now, the Parthians, you asked about the Germans too. The Parthians are a little bit easier. Well, the Germans. Let's, so let's say right. with the Parthians. The Parthians okay, yeah, sure. Go ahead. This is, so this is total speculation. But let's let's raise it. Is it is it is it a possible scenario? Is it possible that the Parthians contracted this plague first and that their invasion collapsed partly because they're all dying of plague, and that the Romans, you know, thought this is going easy. This is going a bit easier than yeah. it was going to go. Like these guys are retreating. Um, yeah, we're. I mean, normally we don't stand a chance fighting against all this cavalry in the desert and stuff like. Yeah. But, you know, like this is going better than we thought. And then after a short delay, it spreads through the Roman army. Right. Like, <laughs> and they get to, they get, I mean, I suppose in a way, you know, the Parthians, are, maybe originally the Parthians are the ones that are trying to fight a war while coping with the plague and yeah. the Romans attack them, you know, they collapse. Now the Romans become infected. Now the other ones that are having to, now the Germanic tribes are attacking the Romans while they're all dying of plague, perhaps. And I, I want to mention, again, this is speculation. However, we talked about the importance of religion and blaming the gods and so on in the ancient world. The, the Germanic tribes were perceived by the Romans as very superstitious. And mm-hmm. it is true in ancient history that battles are often abandoned because there's allegedly... You know, lightning or thunder, you know, right, or some birds flying the wrong way or something, right? Like, like, whoa, it's filming, (laughs) we're all going home. 
Like, what? <laughs> like, we're not fighting. It was full moon. That's you right. might be joking, man. Yeah. Like, Did you guys see those five birds up <laughs> yeah, there? We, we got yeah. to get out of here. Yeah, sorry. Like, it's almost like a kind of union, trade union sort of, like, no, nope, no, nope, sorry. We have to, they, they, the lads are going to put the tools down. Like, we can't possibly work under these conditions. Right. Like, <laughs> mobilize us right. up, right? But right. I wonder if the Germanic tribes, and there are a bunch of them, right, to be clear, yeah. and they keep fighting each other and switching sides, and it's pretty chaotic. Yeah. It's mess. Uh, it's messy. They, so the, did, did, was it possible the Germanic tribes looked at the Romans and thought, they're all dying of plague, right? We're relatively unaffected at the moment. Listen, guys, the gods are basically telling us we should invade. They're they're mm. te- like they're handing it to us in a play. Our en- like our enemy are collapsing from. It's a gift from the gods. Mm-hmm. We'd be crazy I, to turn this down. It's it's certainly possible. As you're right, it would be speculative. I do think, in addition to that possibility, there were just some hard practical realities too. So I mm. mentioned like the paleoclimatological evidence. We've got some tree rings from northern Europe from the uh, from parts of Austria, what's now modern Austria and Finland, which do suggest a a pretty serious drought in the parts of the world where some of these tribes would have been or the people that were north of those tribes would have been that would have pushed those people that were north down into the Germanic tribes, which would have been pushed them down into Roman territory. So it's true that um so so that's one cause but then when they get down into roman territory and we don't quite know the chronology of the marcomannic yeah. war so like at one point they besiege aquilia well if they besiege that city when it's dealing with plague or or shortly after mm-hmm. and realize that the romans are suffering from some kind of epidemic sure i don't see any reason why they might not think hey look this is our moment like we're getting pressed on on the backside this is our moment to come in here. The gods are upset yeah. with them. Or I, I don't know enough about various uh, Germanic tribal beliefs to know how they would have constructed this view, but I, I don't think it's out. Of, I don't think it's crazy. I think you may be onto something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, I guess in conclusion, um, this is, this is quite a hard question. Or is it, it's a simple question or it could be a hard question. It, it, it really is the whole conversation, you know, but flipped around. How do you think Marcus's reign might have gone differently or how might Rome in general have fared better if this plague had just never happened? Like how, yeah. well, what difference would it have made if they hadn't endured this? This is a good question. And it, 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 in some ways, so despite everything that I've said about how virulent the plague was and how deadly it was, I am in terms of the scholarship. So there are obviously other people that look at ancient diseases. I am what is called a minimalist. So mm-hmm. I am on the the kind of the low and skeptical end of how bad this thing was. You've got people that would say it right. killed 30% of the population and it lasted for 25 years. I kind of think it killed maybe more like three to 5% and lasted maybe 10 years. Now uh-huh. that's still a pretty severe outbreak. Yeah. So what role does the plague have in, as, as you said, right? What, how would things have gone differently? Mm-hmm. I think the plague's primary power was not so much in the number of people it killed. I do think it was very disruptive. I mean, don't get me wrong. Any society is, but especially a pre-industrial slave-based society uh, would have suffered inordinately from the loss of several million people. But mm-hmm. I think the real effects of the pandemic were the religious, social, and cultural ramifications that suddenly there is this idea that either the gods are very upset or we have been worshiping them wrong or we need to find somebody to punish. And so I think that's one of the main effects. So if the plague wouldn't have happened, I think eventually a lot of the crises of the age would have happened anyway. They just would have happened over a longer period and maybe not all at once because in accompany accompanying the plague were financial crises and debasement of coinage and the mines running out and wars and criminal gangs going through the empire and mm-hmm. just a variety of problems. So I think those things were going to happen because Rome's economy, 
its political system was just fragile. I mean, it's a slave society. Uh It's, it's a, it's a kind, it's, it doesn't have the kind of markets that, that would have supported any kind of economic growth or anything. So it was just kind of bound, I think in some ways to fall apart. I just think it would have been a lot more gradual. Uh, There wouldn't have been this, this, uh, all-encompassing, multifaceted crisis under Marcus. It w- it might have just been kind of drug out. Yeah. Okay. That that seems that seems interesting. Uh, it's reasonable. So, well, I think that's enough disease for one day. I think <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've it's been a really interesting discussion. I mean, I I really think history actually comes alive more in some regards when we focus in on these kind of niche subjects um you know we i think it really paints a more vivid picture of marcus aurelius as a historical figure and the times in which he lived you know so just i think listening to the discussion that we've had today it seems odd that people who are into philosophy might get something out of it but i really think people sitting down and reading the meditations now would have a little bit more context for you know and i guess what it dry what it would the impact I would imagine it, it would have is that as they yeah. read the meditations, it highlights how mm-hmm. extremely uh, stoic he's being about, mm-hmm. as you put it earlier, the age of anxiety, extreme, yeah. uh, extremely chaotic and horrific mm-hmm. uh, period in which he's he's living, and how his response stands in stark contrast, like to the way that other people are uh, reacting around him. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I hope, you know, I do hope people buy the book, but I alluded to this in a tweet. I actually think just looking at the bits of your book I could see on Google, which if folks, I'm sure all of your listeners know this, it comes out on, your book comes out on February 6th, same date as my book. Um, I think the books could be read in some ways as kind of, um, what do they call this when uh, Arrested Development did this in season four, where you look at something, uh, the same story, but from multiple angles. Yeah. Uh, it's like Raj, Rajnishi, Raj, I forget, Rama, I can't remember what it is. Anyway, but I think both books, yeah, I think both books could work together really well. Like in yours, um, you get Marcus Aurelius and his, his relationships, his life, his way of thinking. And then I think in mine, you would get a sense of what was happening around yeah. him at the same time. So yeah. it should be really good for folks. They, I, they're, they're getting a real treat on February 6th. This kind of interdisciplinary, like looking at things from different perspectives, I, I think it really allows us to experience ancient history in a more vivid way. Yeah, mm-hmm. so folks, rush out and buy a copy of Pox Romana. Uh, you can pre- pre-order it now. Like that, that'll, help, uh, that'll help the book sales. Get it featured on Amazon. It's already number one, new release in <laughs> Communicable Diseases. There we go. Uh, there you go. Like, so keep it, keep it, <laughs> keep it in the charts. And uh, I've really enjoyed our discussion. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks, Colin, for joining me. Uh, we hope that you, the audience, enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. So please share the link with your friends. Subscribe to Stoicism Philosophy uh, as we have life, the newsletter on Substack for the podcasts and the articles. And subscribe. Go off and subscribe and listen to the Pox Romana podcast as well so thanks for listening Uh, it's goodbye from me donald robertson and goodbye from my guest goodbye everyone thank you goodbye